Welcome to this Westminster Town Hall Forum. Today's is a special youth forum, and we welcome the guests here in our live studio, in our live audience, who have come to us from area schools. I'm Kate Smith. I'm with Minnesota Public Radio, and I'm moderator of today's forum. Our program is broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Pedro Zamora is with us today, a young man who has turned a personal tra tragedy into a national campaign to educate his peers about AIDS. Zamora, who is 21, was diagnosed four years ago with HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. At the age of eight, Pedro traveled with members of his family from their native Cuba to Florida as part of what we would know as the Mariel Boatlift. The Zamora family settled into their new life. Pedro excelled at school and in sports. And then in 1989, a high school blood drive first detected his infection. Zamora has conquered a fear of public speaking to become a popular national figure. He's been featured on national news programs and in public schools. He's spoken before congressional groups about AIDS and is currently working to set up AIDS education programs for Latin American countries. He's also part of a group evaluating school programs on HIV and AIDS. Zamora, who lives in Miami, speaks most often in schools. His talks are frank. He covers subjects such as needle sterilization and how to use a condom. Pedro says he's trying to teach a lesson everyone should learn. AIDS education in America's schools now has official sanction in all 50 states. While that may be disturbing to some, many educators say it's essential that young people learn the risks of exposure to AIDS. Officials at the Center for Disease Control report 20% of all AIDS patients are under 30. And because of the long incubation time, it's likely many of those people were infected with HIV as teenagers. Pedro Zamora will share his story with us today. His speech is entitled, Light Choices, Heavy Consequences. Welcome to you, Pedro Zamora. <clears throat> Thank you. You know, in the past few years, I have approached thousands of uh, podiums across the USA. And every time I approach a podium, I approach it with very mixed emotions. Right now, part of me is very angry and confused and sad, while another part of me is trying to figure out how to convey what I am feeling, yet another part of me feels very proud and strong, and part of me wants to run into a dark corner and ask God to take me away because the thought of living with AIDS is a lot more scary than the thought of dying of it. And yet another part of me wants to stand here and scream out what I'm feeling and scream and fight. So today, once again, I would take a deep breath and pray to my God to help me once again repeat my story. If I stand here before you, 
and tell you my story, it is not just simply so that you will get the concept of uh, Pedro Zamora's life. I do it in the hope that my story does not repeat itself. I do it in the hopes that in me, you see yourselves. And in my story, you see what could potentially be your story. So I would go to, when I found out I was HIV positive, I found out that I was HIV positive at the age of 17. I was a junior in high school. Uh, that was back in 1989. I never had any symptoms. Uh, like most teenagers, I was not sick. There was no sign that I could be infected with the HIV virus. I never thought that HIV or AIDS would touch my life. I was an honor student. I was got to the cross-country team. I was a member of the Junior Honor Society. I was president of the science club. You name it, I was involved with it. And it wasn't until one day when I came into my first spirit class, which was honor science, and I sat down to the, next to the girl who was uh, in my class, and she told me, did you study for the test? And I said, what test? I had not opened a book in days. And it turned out we were having a test that day, and I had not studied for it. And as the teacher was explaining what the test was going to be about, this girl walks inside the class and says, the American Red Cross is here, and it is asking us to donate blood. Then the teacher said, any of you who go and donate blood will be excused for the day. So I thought, ah, this is my ticket out of taking the test. So I went and donated blood. And that's blood, by the way, is my accent. Um, everything was fine. About a month later, I received a letter from the American Red Cross saying that one of the tests that they had done in the process of screening the blood uh, was positive. It does not tell me that it was HIV. For the first time, the thought of being HIV positive came into my mind. I was very frightened, so I decided to rip the letter and ignore the whole thing. In about six months, they sent me anywhere from five to seven letters, all asking me to come in, uh, asking me to call them to find out. But I was too frightened. And finally, after six months, I went to a, a private doctor and got tested. So now I'm 17 years old, and I'm sitting in a cold doctor's office, and he's telling me that I am HIV positive. There were so many emotions that went through me, so many questions, like, am I going to die? Am I going to get sick? How? When? How is my father going to react? What about school? Do I have to tell them? Can they throw me out? Am I going to have enough time to graduate? What about college? Should I be under any medication? How can I protect myself and the people around me? And of course, I didn't have any uh, answers to these questions because the only two things that I knew about AIDS or about people with AIDS at the time was one, people with AIDS are bad people, they're dirty people, and two, 
they're going to die and they're going to die fast. And it has taken me a long time to get rid of that message that was so strong in my mind. Even today, as a person living with AIDS, that message keeps spreading in my mind. The thought of being HIV positive was uh, very scary to me. Um, I told my immediate family two weeks after I found out I was HIV positive and never talked about it again. Uh, for eight months, six to eight months, I didn't talk about it. I didn't want to go to a support group. I knew I was HIV positive, but I just didn't want to deal with it. So finally I landed in the hospital with uh, shingles. And shingles is uh, basically an infection, it's a viral infection that you usually see in older people. As you get older, your immune system breaks down and you get shingles. It is uh, not common at the age of 18, which is when I got it. In the hospital, for the first time, I was forced to deal with HIV and AIDS because for the first time, my disease took a form that I could feel. It was right here in my face. I couldn't just turn off the TV or turn on the TV. I couldn't just flip the channel or pick the phone and say, let's go out dancing. It was in my face and I had to deal with it. What I found out was that I was very frightened, uh, very angry. I had all these questions and nobody was providing me with answers. There was all this silence around me and the silence was even more scary than the disease itself. So finally I got out of the hospital after three weeks and I went to my first support group. I walked into the support group as a very frightened 18 year old and we sat in a circle and there were about 20 people there. There were 18 gay men, there was an African American woman, there was a facilitator, and then there was me. When we started introducing ourselves, people introduced themselves like, um, hi, my name is Michael, I've been HIV positive for four years, or hi, my name is David, I was diagnosed with AIDS two years ago. But when it got down to the African-American woman, she looked at everybody right in the eyes and said, hi, my name is Sonia Singleton, and I am a person living with AIDS. And to me, that really confused me because I had never put living and AIDS together. I kept going to the support group, and Sonia became uh, my friend and my mentor and my shrink and my confidant. Um, she really taught me to feel proud of who I was, to fight for what I believed. Uh, Sonia also died a year ago. As I was um, trying to figure out what living with AIDS meant to me, and I was trying to figure out who I was as a person living with AIDS. I saw a lot of people living with AIDS around me, and they had a lot of advice. And the two advice that I got most frequently was one, you have to hate AIDS, 
until you have to fight. If you're going to go down, then you might as well go down fighting. And I did that. I really did. I hated AIDS and I fought. And I woke up one day and I was still angry and sad and confused. And what I realized was that I could not hate AIDS. Because if I was always hating, when was I was give myself time to love? If I was always fighting, then when was I going to give myself time to rest? Now, I'm not saying that I love AIDS. Trust me, I do not. What I'm simply saying is that right now, my reality is that I am a person living with AIDS. And if everything keeps the same way, if nothing changes, I would die as a person with AIDS. So what I need to do is to learn how to make AIDS part of my life, my everyday life. If I hate AIDS, then I will be hating a big part of who I am, and I could never do that. The fact is that until my last breath, I will be a person living with AIDS. I am not dying of AIDS. I am not a victim. I am a person living with AIDS. I am... Um, I'm going to tell you a little story. I went to, uh, I was invited to speak to about 300 fifth graders. Now, I don't know if you have ever been with 300 fifth graders, but it's the scariest thing I have ever been through in my life. But I went, I never speak to young children. Um, but I went there because what happened was one of them had seen me on TV and one of those fifth graders went to his teacher and invited me to, and wanted her to invite me to speak. So I went and did it. Now I decided to just have a conversation with them. Just say I was HIV positive and see what kind of questions they had and just go from there. Now every, they were really excited about me being there. Everybody had a name tag. It was really nice. We started the conversation. I said I was HIV positive. I explained a few things about it. And finally, one boy raised his hand. Um, his name was Michael, or is Michael. And he asked me, he said, Pedro, you said that uh, HIV is in, the blood, in your blood uh, system. So if I take all of your blood out and put a new one, wouldn't I cure you? Uh, uh, cure you? And I said, sure. If you take all of my blood out and put uninfected blood, yeah. I would not be HIV positive. Uh, but I explained to him why it was hard to do that. Three questions down the line, he raised his hand again. He said, well, what if I take half of your blood out, put a new one, then take the second half? I explained to him why that could not work. By the time you take the second half out, the first one will be infected, and so on. Four questions down the line, he raised his hand again. Well, what if, during the hour that I spent with them, he raised his hand about 20 times all trying to figure out how to cure me. Now, what I saw in Michael was a lot of hope. What I saw was a little boy who did not care about my funny accent. He didn't care about how I was dressed or how I got HIV. He did not care how much money I had in the bank or who I loved. 
All he cared was about another human being who had a problem. He thought he had the answer to that problem and was trying to give it to me. Now, I really believe that most of the answers to the problems we as a society are facing lie within Michael, lie within the little boy and girl that all of us have inside of us. If only we could get in touch with that little boy and girl. I grew up in uh, Cuba uh, under a communist uh, regimen. Um, I grew up with a lot of mixed messages. And I think all of us in this society grow up with a lot of mixed messages. Not, we always talk about the media and how the media sends all these mixed messages. But I always, I laugh at that. Because the fact is that the media is a reflection of, of us as a society. I go, I, I laugh because if we look at home, our parents are sending us mixed messages. And we are sending mixed messages to our parents. One of the biggest mixed messages that I got growing up was about communism, was about liberty. Um, my parents were very much against communism um, and against the system. Uh, and when I went to school, they taught me that Fidel Castro uh, was the father of all little boys and girls. And then I got home, and they taught me that he was not a very nice person. So I, that was very, I was always very confused about that. Under communism, uh, one of the biggest ceremonies that they have um, is when a boy or girl reaches six or seven, they become a young communist pioneer. Now, what that means is that you start understanding what the communism principles are and you start living by them. As a um, ritual or as a uh, ceremony, what it meant was that your mother would come and tie a red bandana around your neck and take a picture and it was this big ceremony. Now, for us as kids, that was a big deal. It meant taking more responsibility. It, it meant growing. The day that the ceremony happened, every mother was there except my mother. And I waited for her and waited for her, and she never showed up. Um, I had to take the picture with my T-shirt. So by the time I got back home, I was very angry and, and very sad and very confused. And I... Um, got home and told, told my mom, you know, why weren't you there? And I started very angry talking to her about that. And she tried to explain to me why she couldn't be there and why the ceremony was against what she believed. But I was only six years old, so I really didn't understand much of it. And finally, I guess, giving up, she looked at me and she said, what are you feeling right now? And I said, I'm angry. And she says, well, how angry are you? I thought, what do you mean, how angry am I? I'm angry. She says, well, if you close your eyes and you picture the biggest mountain you could ever see in front of you and you get all of your anger and all of your emotions, do you think you're angry enough to be able to move that mountain? Now, I thought my mother was going nuts. But I did it anyway. I closed my eyes. And I pictured the biggest mountains I ever seen, which was basically a little hill. And I got all my emotions and all of my anger, and I tried to move that mountain. 
And then I opened my eyes, and my mother, who was smiling her face, said, what happened? And I said, I moved it. I think I really could move it. And then she said, well, start moving them. Now, I really didn't understand what she was saying, and a few days later, I pretty much forgot about the whole event. But when I was 17 years old, and I was sitting in a hospital bed, feeling very lonely and very scary, and even though I had the support of my family and I had a room full of flowers and cards and letters from my friends, I still felt very abandoned and lonely and there was such a silence behind me, I knew exactly what my mother was talking about. So I decided to go out there and start moving my mountains. And I was ready. I was so angry and I had all this energy and I felt strong and I just wanted to go out there and scream and do whatever I had to do to get people listening. But the first lesson I learned was that before I went out there and tried to move the mountains that I saw out there, I had to move the mountains that were in here. I had to move the mountains of racism and age phobia and sexism and homophobia and all the isms that are out there. Because until we move the mountains that are in here, we cannot go out there and do anything about anything else. So today, if you listen to anything I have said, I want you to get whatever you're feeling right now, whether you're angry or sad or bored or have fear, whatever it is that you may feel, and turn it into action and do something. Age without a doubt. And I think when everything is said and done, age will go down in our history as the one thing that challenged us. I don't think that we as a generation have any bigger challenge than age. It has not only challenged our scientists and our doctors, but it also has challenged our lawmakers, our politicians, and more importantly, it has challenged us. It has challenged what kind of humans are we and how much do we really love each other. So I hope that you take on the challenge. I hope that when my nephews and nieces grow up and look at my generations, that they could say that we as a generation face the challenge that was before us. The two best friends that Ace has ever had are ignorance and indifference. And I could really deal with ignorance. I'd done it for four years. But indifference, I really find it hard to uh, deal with. So I hope that you turn my words into uh, action and that you really uh, get involved. Thank you. Listening to Pedro Zamora on the Westminster Town Hall Forum. 
This forum is co-sponsored by the James R. Thorpe Foundation. We're going to move into a question and answer session now. And for those of you here in the audience, you'll find yellow cards. You were either, either given them or you'll find them in front of you. Please write down your question and pass them to the aisles where they will be collected. The questions will be sorted today by Wenda Moore and Jane Stamstead. If you are listening in our radio audience, please call in with your questions. The phone number here at Westminster Church is area code 612-332-3421. Mr. Zamora, would you like to come back to the podium? Sure. <clears throat> I would like to begin with a question. You have said that you are bringing your message to the public, that you are presenting speeches like the one today because you don't want anyone to deal with the pain that you have dealt with. I think it's easy for many people to overlook the stigma that persons living with AIDS face. I think it's easy for us to see past that. Will you tell us about that, what you have faced, how it has changed your life? It, it, it's really hard to get that across to people because um, the fact is I am a person living with AIDS and it's a lot easier said than, than done. I, I promised myself that I was going to be very open uh, about the fact that I was HIV positive. And everywhere I go, usually people know I'm HIV positive. As a matter of fact, wherever you meet me, if you have more than a five to ten minute conversation with me, you're probably going to find out that I'm HIV positive. And I forget a lot of times um, that people are not used to that. I'm used to it, but people are not used to that. I have gotten all kinds of responses. I've been at a party, for instance, and um, I'm introduced to this person, whoever that may be, and they ask me, you know, the conversation gets to what do you do? You go to school? Do you uh, work? So we start talking about work. I end up at some point saying I'm HIV positive, and I've gotten all kinds of responses from total shock and turning around and leaving to, oh, my brother has AIDS too, to doing a presentation right there in the middle of the party and talking about safer sex and how can you get it, how can you not get it. Um, I, I, and I really have ruined a lot of people's uh, night, you know, saying I'm HIV positive. Uh, people react in all kinds of different ways. And it's hard. Sometimes I walk into a room and it's very hard for me to realize that the one thing that they know about me is that I am HIV positive. They don't know anything else about me except that I am HIV positive. And that no matter how long they speak to me, to a lot of people, that's all they will walk away with. Because I, I, I'm a person living with AIDS, but I'm a lot more than an HIV positive individual. Um, and it's hard to get that across to people sometimes. Our next question is from the audience. AIDS is not a gay disease, yet often the line between AIDS phobia and homophobia is blurred and difficult to identify. My question is, how much did religious training enter your life and define you as a person? And where did the church enter into your life after diagnosis with HIV in terms of your nurturing and support? Um, I grew up in Cuba, and my, the religion that I grew up with was uh, Santeria. Now, Santeria is an African religion. Um, most people in Cuba have believed in a mix between 
um, Santeria and the Catholic Church. Um, so that's what I grew up with. I, I, was, I have always been an extremely uh, spiritual person, uh, although not very religious. Um, I, I find that today, after being HIV positive and facing um, everything that I had to face, I realized that not only did, did I believe in God, but I had a relationship with God. And I think that's a big uh, difference. If I go around and I ask randomly 100 people, do you believe in God? Probably 99 of them will raise their hand and say yes, but if I ask, do you have a relationship with God? The hands will probably go down. Um, so I do have a relationship with my God, um, although I do not see myself as quote-unquote religious. I'm told that we have a few Spanish-speaking students in the audience, and I'm wondering if briefly you could say a few words to them. <laughs> in Spanish, you mean? <laughs> what could I say? Um, para aquellos que hablan español, eh, nuestra comunidad, más que, eh, que cualquier otra comunidad, ha sido eh, bien afectada por, por esta enfermedad. Y tenemos nosotros una responsabilidad como comunidad de hablar sobre el tema. Eh, nosotros como, como jóvenes, si nuestros padres no quieren hablar sobre el tema o no quieren hablar con nosotros sobre el tema, vamos y hablamos con ellos. Eh, una de las cosas, uno de los grandes problemas en nuestra comunidad es que nuestros padres no están muy educados sobre eh, esta enfermedad porque muchos de ellos no eh, conocen el idioma. Eh, así que eh, nuestra responsabilidad es ir, que nosotros ahora que tenemos la información, ir a nuestros padres y, y educarlos a, a ellos. And the translation for us? What I was basically saying is that we as a community uh, have been very affected by HIV and AIDS. We as minorities, um, the African-American community and the Hispanic community has been hit very hard by HIV and AIDS. The reason is not anything that we're doing. The reason is simply that the information has been very slow coming to us information that is in a language that I could understand as, as a minority person, as a Hispanic person. You cannot educate me as a Hispanic person the same way that you educate a white upper class man. That's just impossible. So the, the reason that our community has been very hard, uh, hit very hard by this epidemic, is that the information has not gotten to us. Uh, our names have never been called. So we must uh, change that. I could only speak for the Hispanic community. One of the problems in the Hispanic community is that, um, the language barrier. My parents could not educate me because they did not, did not know the language. But now I have the information. So I will make it my responsibility to go and educate my parents. And I know that sometimes it's hard to do, but we have to. That was the translation. How do you know the difference? And about how soon do you get full-blown AIDS after you contract the virus? How soon you, do you get full-blown AIDS after you contract the virus? Um, it's pretty much impossible to say. We could give you estimates and averages, but it's very hard to say. HIV and AIDS is an extremely individualistic individual disease. 
um, how long I am going to live with this disease depends on who I am and what I do. Um, if I find out I'm HIV positive and I abuse alcohol or drugs, in all probability I would die before a person who does not. Um, we're talking about the immune system, and the immune system is um, affected by everything you do, what you're thinking, what you're not thinking, uh, how cold it is, or if it's too hot, if I'm working too much or not working enough, if I'm praying too much or not praying enough. It is affected by everything that I do. Uh, so it's very hard to tell you how long you're going to live. In 1985, from the time that a person was diagnosed with full-blown AIDS, not HIV, full-blown AIDS, to the time of death, it was 18 months. Today, it would be impossible to do that because we have a lot of new treatments uh, to prolong, to, to look at the uh, individual diseases that I, as a person with AIDS, would get. Me, personally, that's a very touchy question right now. Um, uh, up to six months ago, I was I was, my diagnosis was of HIV positive, asymptomatic, which meant that I was HIV positive, but I didn't have any symptoms. Today, that is changing, um, and that's something that I'm personally trying to deal with. Um, I am getting some of the symptoms, and although I am not diagnosed with full-blown AIDS, and it will probably take some time before that happens, I have to face the fact that Today I have some symptoms, and that is um, something that I have to, to look at. Um, so it's, 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 I'm dealing with that right now. Did I answer the question? I think so. I'd like to remind those who are listening in our radio audience that the phone number here at Westminster Presbyterian Church is 332-3421, and please call us with your questions. A comment, apparently, and then a question. I don't have a question, but I think it's really cool of you to do this. It takes a lot of courage and determination. Thank you. But you know what? It, it does, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't, but it does take a lot of courage. Trust me, every morning when I wake up, it's, it's, um, it takes all every ounce of energy I have to, to get up in front of a group of people and say I'm HIV positive. But it also takes a lot of love. Love not only for you as my community, but for myself. Um, it's, it's about looking at, in the mirror and saying, this is who you are, and you're gonna have to deal with it. Uh, and once you have done, it is very tough for me to get in front of you and say I'm HIV positive. But the toughest thing was to get in front of myself and say, you're HIV positive and you need to deal with it. Once you say that, once you stand in front of you and you say, I am an African-American person or I am a Hispanic person and I have a funny accent, and you come to grips with that and you understand yourself as an African-American person, as a Hispanic person, as a white person, then to get in front of other people, it's just a matter of saying, this is who I am, folks. It's no big deal. This is who I am. Deal with it. Do you spend a lot of your day thinking about the fact that you're HIV positive? Yes and no. Um, 
I spend a lot of my day dealing with HIV and AIDS, but that's because I chose to. It, it is my job. I made it my entire life. Um, the fact is I'm traveling all across the country speaking about the fact that I'm HIV positive. Even in my happiest moments, when I'm with my family, with my friends, bowling, going out to a theater, whatever it is that I may be doing, the thought of HIV is there. Now that does not mean that my happier moments are less happy because of it. But it is there. Um, it is something that I deal with constantly. Another thing is that I have a lot of friends who are HIV positive and we come together, we have learned to laugh at it. Uh, we have learned, uh, learned to, uh, to laugh at, at the disease, to laugh at ourselves. A lot of times, you know, I'm in the car and we're going someplace and, and we joke around and, th and say things that if I would sit back and think, if somebody who's not used to dealing with HIV on a daily basis listens to me say, say this, they would think I'm crazy. Um, so what, what I, I do, yeah, I guess I do spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that I'm HIV positive. Do you think the mass media, um, including advertising, television, magazines, is helping or hurting the effort to teach young people about AIDS? Again, I think that recently the mass media has getting a lot better about putting out information about HIV and AIDS. Um, if you ask me, of course, I would always have to say that they could do better, um, but, they, but there has been a lot of information uh, out about HIV and AIDS. It's become more mainstream uh, through the media. I think, again, however you feel about the media, um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm co coming from a very neutral point of view, um, whether you feel that they are sending out mixed messages or they're, they're selling sex, whatever it is that you feel about the media, you have to realize that the media is a reflection of our society. That if you want to change the media, you have to start changing yourself. A lot of times, what angers me a little bit is, is when pe we sit back and we blame everybody else. It's the government's fault, it's society's fault, it's the media's fault, it's that person's fault, it, it is the person who gave it to me uh, fault. The bottom line, and coming from a communist uh, country, I, I, I feel very strongly about this, the bottom line is that we are lucky enough to live in a country where we are the government, where we are society. Society is sitting in this room right now. If only we could realize that and empower ourselves to, to realize that we are society, that any changes, if, if when you're looking for changes, you are pointing your finger at any direction that is not pointing at yourself, you're looking for change in the wrong place. So when we're talking about changing the media, we have to start changing ourselves. How did you become HIV positive? I got HIV through sexual contact, uh, through unsafe sex. Um, I became sexually active at the age of 14. Um, when, right after my mother uh, passed away to cancer. Um, today, as a 21 year old who have had enough time to reflect on it and look at my behavior, I realized that 
part of the reason why I had sex and got involved sexually with other people was to fill or feel the, the, the void that my mother's death left. Um, I was looking for that love and attention, that affection that I was missing from my mother, and sex gave it to me. Granted, it was only for a little while, but at that time, that's all that I was seeking. I was not seeking what was going to give me gratification uh, in 20 years. I was seeking what was going to make me feel good right now. Um, so anyway, I got it through uh, sexual contact. How effectively are schools teaching students about AIDS, and are they constrained by parental or societal objections to sex education? Well, my personal opinion is that they're definitely constrained by parental and society, uh, societal uh, you know, boundaries. But one of the problems that I see is that this is not a simple issue. It is very complex. Why? Because when we talk about HIV and AIDS, we're talking about sex and sexuality, and we're talking about death. The two biggest taboos that we as a society have are sex and sexuality, and death. So when we're talking about AIDS, we have to talk about the two biggest taboos that we have. Um, the other problem is that we think that information by itself changes behavior, and that's totally wrong. If information by itself changes behavior, none of us will be smoking or drinking. Everybody will be using the seatbelt. We have the information about what th those things do to us, yet we still do it. Why? Because we took out the emotional component. The fact is that if I am 16 years old, I get in front of a 16-year-old girl, for instance, and that 16-year-old girl tells me that she has decided to become sexually active with her boyfriend over the last two years. That's a decision she made. I'm not going to change her mind. So I say, fine. I give her all the information about HIV and AIDS. How can you get it? How can you not get it? I go a step further and take out a condom and show it to her and show her how to use it. Then I get a step further and I get a whole box of condoms, 500 condoms, and put it in her hands. If that night when she is talking to her boyfriend and they're kissing, making out, whatever it is that they're doing, and she takes the condom out of her pocket, her pocketbook, and her boyfriend says, I do not want to use a condom because whatever. She's not going to react with the information I gave her. She's going to react with her emotions. So unless I sit down with a 16-year-old girl and talk about why do you want to have sex? What if your boyfriend says, no, I don't want to use this? And I, don't, and, and, and I don't talk about all of that, then I did nothing. So I could get into 100 10th graders and give them all the information. If I do not talk about the emotions, I did nothing. Uh, so that's one of the problems that I see in education. Now, we're having enough problems trying to push the, the simple facts of HIV and AIDS through the schools. If we're going to talk about emotions also, that's even a bigger issue because then we get into what are the right or wrong reasons to have sex. And of course, it goes from person to person. The next question. There's a great deal of talk about safe sex. What about no sex? Is abstinence unthinkable for today's teens? <laughs> Again, into a complex issue. And, and one of the problems that I see within myself is that I never see anything simple. Everything's very complex. 
one of the problems in sex education in America, we go to extremes. One extreme is no sex, do not have sex. And then we go to the other extreme, which is way over there, and say, if you're going to have sex, use a condom. Now, I believe personally that there's a lot in the middle. I could express my sexuality. The fact is that we're going to be sexual humans. We're sexual human beings. And we're going to be sexual every day of our lives, whether we like it or not, to the rest of our lives. But how I choose to express my sexuality is my decision. Sex is a lot of things. You know, one of the biggest problems that people have in my presentations is when they ask me, are you still sexually active? And I say, yes. Ooh. One of the myths about people living with AIDS is that once you're diagnosed with HIV or AIDS, that's it. You cannot have sex. Well, when I was diagnosed with HIV, my doctor did not take my sexual drive out. It's still there. Right? So, the point that I always try to get across to people, I've been in a, a sexual, spiritual, and romantic relationship for the past three years with a person who's negative. I could be extremely, I am extremely sexual with another human being and never put she or he at risk to getting HIV. But I'll take it a step further. I could be extremely sexual with another human being, not use a condom, and never put she or he at risk to getting HIV. Why? Because sex is a lot of things. And between no sex and using a condom, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of ways that I could express my sexual, sexuality and my sexual being with another person without putting myself at risk. Did I answer the question? Next question. If parents aren't giving their children guidance about abstinence or safe sex, should schools take on the responsibility or should schools recruit other people in the community from churches or other groups to handle the responsibility of giving that advice? As an educator, one of the biggest problems that the schools are facing is that everything is dumped on the schools. Everything that every other group feels uncomfortable talking about send it to the schools, let the teacher deal with it. I was uh, part of the people who wrote the curriculum um, for the Dade County Public Schools, which is in Miami. And one of the biggest problems that we faced was that, yes, um, HIV and AIDS education was mandatory. In certain grades, uh, condom demonstration was mandatory. On paper, it looked great. But how do you get a teacher to feel comfortable doing that. So what I think needs to happen is, is, a, um, is everybody needs to come together and, 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 and deal with this. Because the fact is that I cannot change my sexual, or the sexual part of me from the spiritual part of me. You know, even when I walk into my church, I am sexual. And a lot of people like to believe that they, you could separate that, but that's not true. So we need to be talking about HIV and AIDS and safer sex from the pulpit too. Um, 
So it's, 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 the church needs to do it, the, the schools need to do it, and certainly the parents need to do it. Um, and I think it needs to be a shared responsibility. To dump it in one group, it's, it's, it will be impossible. You made mention in your speech that you're inf informing your parents and your family and friends was a very, uh, you didn't talk a lot about your HIV status. Um, how did you exactly tell your family and friends? Uh, two weeks after I was uh, diagnosed, I sat down with my dad. And I said, um, Dad, I found out that I went to my doctor and found out that, I was HIV, that I'm HIV positive. And he looked at me and said, what is that? And I said, well, HIV is the virus that is believed to cause AIDS. And he said, so do you have AIDS? I said, well, not exactly. And I had to sit there and educate him about HIV and AIDS. When in reality, what I really wanted was just for him to hug me and kiss me and tell me that everything was going to be okay. I wouldn't have believed him, but I needed to hear that. Um, one of the things that I found out about my family, which was very interesting to me, was that every single thing that I have felt, they have. The anger, the fear, the emotions, the, the, the pride, the strength, they have felt too. Um, a lot of times it's hard because we're not at the same place at the same time. So a lot of times when I want to talk about it, my father does not want to talk about it. A lot of times when my father needs to talk about it, I don't want to talk about it. So it's, it's, it's just taking a lot of communication between us uh, for us to get where we are today. Uh, my father, without a doubt, is, is the biggest support system I have. And uh, when I decided to go public, uh, he not only uh, agreed to it, but went public with me, which was uh, it's really great. How does a person get involved in trying to fight AIDS? It's about giving whatever you could. Um, it's about knowing, getting in touch with what you could give and give it to the fullest. Um, I had never gone to a hospital uh, to just be by the side of somebody who's dying with AIDS, uh, except maybe, you know, uh, the couple of friends of mine that has gotten, gotten sick. I have never delivered a meal to somebody who's HIV positive, because I found within me what I do best, what I really feel strongly about, and I gave it all I had. Uh, so it's about finding if, if what you could do is volunteer at the local hotline and give information out, um, then, then do it. Uh, if what you could simply do is to talk to your friends about it. The one thing that all of us could do when I go back to high school, and I think of all the jokes and all the comments that I heard about HIV and AIDS, I mean, AIDS it got to a point where it became like uh, um, the boogeyman or the, uh, I forget the, the word that they used to use. Um, but anyway, it, it, I had so many chances in high school to say, wait a minute, you're wrong. It's not a gay disease, or it's not this, or it's not that. So you have the chance to do that. You have the chance to say, this is not funny. Um, there are people who are dying of it, and we need to look at it seriously. Uh, so if anything, you could do that. Um, I, one of the frustrating things for me, and, and, and that it uh, tires me a lot, is that I feel that I have to be on 24 hours a day. Um, because 
this is my job right now. This is what I do, right? But when I am at Burger King trying to get my burger, and there's a guy who's behind me who's saying something ignorant about HIV, it used to be that they were talking about them, but now he's talking about me. So I find it very hard to just let it go. So I have an opportunity to face that person and say, excuse me, but you're wrong. And then Sunday when I am at the grocery store and the sweet little old lady who's in front of me is saying something stupid about HIV and AIDS, again I have another opportunity. And what's so tiresome is that I have a hundred opportunities a day. So that gets tiresome. You know, by the time I go to bed at night, you know, after between the people who I've seen in, in, in out, you know, shopping and stuff like that, and the, sp the stupid people that I've seen on TV and the Donahue show and all that stuff, I just, I want to go crazy. So we all have a chance to, uh, to do something. And I'm sure, you know, if you call your local uh, hotline or, or a local agency or even uh, the church, uh, they will give you plenty of uh, things where you could get involved. If you knew that you were to die of AIDS tomorrow, what would be the last thing you would do for yourself? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I, I think pretty much, I mean, there's a lot of things I, I would like to do, but that I, things that I really have to do, that there's not one thing. I, one of the things that I, makes me happy anyway, is that Right now, every single person in my life knows how I feel about them. They know whether I don't like them. They know whether I love them. And that's very important to me. It is very important to me that in every conversation that I have with my dad, I end it with however I feel. I love you, dad, or whoever it is that I'm talking to. Um, because I do realize that I may not have another chance to say that. Um, so I'm not sure what I would do, but this really, I, if, if I die right now, I would die a very happy person. Uh, there's not any burning thing that I uh, want to do. Our speaker today has been Pedro Zamora. On behalf of the Westminster Town Hall Forum, I thank him and I thank you. Thank you.